Father God, we thank you. We bless you for your word. We need your comfort today, Father. We need your instruction and your counsel. And we pray that you would speak to us by your word, make it come alive for us this morning. Um, And please command us by your word as we listen to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So as Taylor said, today is the first day of our short series in Jonah. We're going to take a little break from our series in the Gospel of Luke. Um, Jonah, the book of Jonah, has been coming up in our community in recent months, in our community groups and in other contexts, and uh, we thought it would be great to um, focus on it in our sermons over the summer. Um, So what I want to do is to start by setting Jonah in its context, in its place in the big story of the Old Testament. So um, this is easy because Sarah's already laid the groundwork. If you've been coming to her Old Testament nights, you'll remember that she's presented this big Old Testament timeline, which is actually still standing there against the wall in the corner, ready for this Thursday. Um, So you remember that after the children of Abraham moved into the promised land, uh, they wanted a king to govern them. For a while they didn't have a king, but then they asked for one. Um, because all the other nations around them had kings, and they pressured the prophet Samuel to give them a king. And Samuel anointed Saul as their first king. And so Israel became a kingdom, and it was united under Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, the first three kings. But after Solomon, it all fell apart. The kingdom split into two and became a divided kingdom. Uh, with the northern kingdom was called Israel, and it had ten tribes, and the capital of the northern kingdom was in Samaria, and then there was the southern kingdom, which had two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, and its capital was in Jerusalem. And so in the history of the timeline, eventually the northern kingdom is conquered by Assyria, and uh, they're taken away to Assyria, and the northern kingdom essentially disappears from history. We don't see them ever again. The southern kingdom of Judah, about 200 years later, is conquered by Babylon and taken into exile in Babylon, and a remnant of Judah does return to Jerusalem. So that's the big story. Now, Jonah lived in the period we call the divided kingdom up there. Sarah's written the divided kingdom. So he came after uh, Saul and David and Solomon, um, but before Israel was conquered by Assyria. So in that middle between period. Um, Now, Jonah himself is mentioned very briefly in the book of 2 Kings. So for your notes, it's 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25. There's a mention of a prophet called Jonah, the son of Amittai. And there in 2 Kings, he's called a prophet and a servant of the Lord. And it talks about something he said that came to pass, which was one of the tests of a true prophet. Um, It says he lived in the northern kingdom of Israel under King Jeroboam. And his hometown was a town called Gath Hefer, which is near Nazareth. So he lived up there in the north. So Jonah was a prophet in the time of King Jeroboam. <clears throat> and that would really be all we knew about him if it wasn't for his marvelous little book. So we're going to start studying it today. Please uh, find Jonah in your Bibles. Find, uh, there's stacks of Bibles around. Um, please grab one. Look up Jonah. If you're using uh, one of our paperback pew pew Bibles, it's page 532. I noticed that we've got some hardback Bibles. Someone shout out a page number for those. 774 uh, for the hardback Bibles. If it's your own Bible, then you can find Jonah after Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, go past Daniel, you're into the Minor Prophets, and then uh, he's number five in the Minor Prophets. So you've got, uh, what is it, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, then Jonah. 
Number five. So raise your hand if you found Jonah. It's kind of hard to find. Okay, got about half. Give you a little more time. Still looking. Raise your hand if you found Jonah. Okay, we got most. Yeah, there's, there's stacks of others on the seats right here. Uh, that Bible is page 532. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to go ahead. <clears throat> uh, so we're starting with Jonah chapter 1, and it begins, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So the book of Jonah opens with, what we recognize as a classic Old Testament formula for prophecy, okay? The word of the Lord came to X, the son of Y, saying. That phrase comes up over and over in the Old Testament prophets. So here's confirmation right at the start of the book of Jonah that he was indeed a prophet of the Lord. And I want you to remember that when the Bible talks about prophets, it's not specifically talking about future tellers, Okay, so in our um, popular books and movies like Harry Potter, whenever you have a prophecy, it's always a word about the future, right? That's what we sort of think about prophecy. But in the Bible, a prophecy is any announcement of God to his people. Okay, so sometimes it's a message about what's going to happen in the future, but more often it's God telling people how to properly interpret what they're seeing in the present. Um, so a prophet is a messenger a spokesperson for God. And if we're familiar with the lives of the Old Testament prophets, what we expect to find as we read the book of Jonah is a series of oracles or messages from God. They're usually written in Hebrew poetry, and then there'll be some stories about how the prophet clashes with stubborn kings, and his end is usually a grisly one as he gets killed by the king he's been uh, proclaiming against. So that's what we expect when we come to a book of prophecy. But Jonah is really quite different because uh, Jonah, having heard a word from the Lord, goes in the other direction. He is the Bible's really only disobedient prophet. Uh, so the Bible has lots of very strange prophets. They do weird things. Uh, they're persecuted often. There are hundreds of false prophets. But I think Jonah is the only disobedient prophet. Um, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and he just ran. <clears throat> and that might be comforting to us. Um, and maybe we can understand Jonah's running, because he certainly had a beast of a call. This is probably the worst call in the Bible. God said, get up, go to Nineveh, and cry out in the street that judgment is coming. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. It was a vast metropolis, it was a formidable stronghold, and it was the home of some of Israel's most hated enemies, a violent, brutal race of conquerors. So Jonah was called to cross-cultural mission, which is rare in the Old Testament, but it was a particularly terrifying sort. So to try and get you into the emotional feel of this, this is about the equivalent of God calling you today to go to Raqqa in Syria, the capital of the ISIS empire, and stand in the street in Raqqa and say, Jesus is Lord and judgment is coming to this city. That, how would you feel if you got that call? That is kind of how Jonah would have felt at the beginning of his book. 
you wouldn't expect to live very long. <laughs> okay, so Jonah had the assignment to go to Nineveh and call out against it. And Jonah also knew, as Sarah noted with the children, that when God sent a prophet, it was always, always, always for the purpose of repentance. So prophets say lots of doom and gloom oracles. They are always with the goal that the people would repent and turn around. God is sending Jonah with the purpose that Nineveh can be forgiven, that Nineveh can repent. Um, if the prophet doesn't go, Nineveh is doomed. The prophet is the savior. Um, and Jonah had no desire that Nineveh be saved, none at all. Uh, so that's part of the reason that Jonah ran. He fled toward Tarshish, which, as Bev noted, is in southern Spain. It was the furthest place in the world that he could get from Nineveh at the time. <laughs> the ship that was going furthest away, that's the one he took. Okay, so usually, as I said, when we come to books of prophecy in the Old Testament, we expect to find a certain kind of writing. We expect to find uh, prophetic poetry is mostly what we expect to find. Um, but Jonah is very different. When we come to Jonah, what we find instead is the story of what happened to this prophet, which is written in Hebrew narrative. Okay, that sounds very technical, but I say that because part of our hope this summer uh, with our Old Testament nights uh, that Sarah leads and with this sermon series in Jonah is that we can open up the Old Testament uh, so that all of you are able to read it and feel sort of more co uh, confident reading it and understanding it. Um, the Old Testament is the Word of God, and it's for you. Um, and there are lots of simple, common-sense tools for reading the Old Testament that make it feel much less strange and obscure and like it's from a foreign country and much more accessible to us. So here's the first thing, for starters. There are five main types of writing in the Old Testament, five main genres, okay? Narrative, poetry, prophecy, wisdom, and legal material. There's a couple of other very minor ones, but those are the five main ones, okay? And narrative, like storytelling, is by far the most common. Now, if we think about those different kinds of genres and types, each one has its own set of rules for understanding it and its own set of expectations. And when you know them, it makes understanding it pretty straightforward. So it's good for us when we come to the Old Testament to start by asking, what kind of writing is this? And when we come to the book of Jonah, we find that chapter 2 is almost all in poetry, but the other three chapters in the book are narrative. So here in Jonah chapter 1, we're reading Hebrew narrative. And so we need a simple toolbox for understanding how Hebrew narrative works. And I have four rules for you, four little tools, little rules of thumb that help us understand narrative. The first one is that the narrator knows everything and is always right. Okay? The second one is pay attention to repetition because words are precious. The third is the most important information is communicated through speech, direct speech. And the last one is take note of who has the last word in the story. Okay? So I want to use all four of these tools today as we study Jonah 1 together. So this is something between a sermon and a toolbox for understanding the Old Testament. It's hopes that you can take these things, these principles, and apply them whenever you read Hebrew narrative in the Old Testament. So the first tool for understanding Hebrew narrative is that the narrator knows everything and is always right. 
Okay? So we might call this the rule of the omniscient narrator. Now, I suppose that whenever we listen to any kind of story, we expect to trust the narrator, right? So the narrator's our guide and our only access to the world of the story. And if the narrator can't be trusted, then the whole story is meaningless. But what's unusual in Hebrew narrative is that although the genre is almost always used to describe historical events, the narrator seems to know everything. It's different from other history because of what the narrator knows. Okay? So um, we don't usually have in normal history what people were feeling at the time or what they were thinking or what they said to themselves. And we almost never have what God's feeling or what God's thinking or what God says to himself. But all of those things happen in Hebrew narrative. And we might ask, how could the narrator possibly know that? And we don't always know how the narrator knows that. But the narrator knows. And the more we read Old Testament stories, the less we'll be surprised by the things the narrator knows. So, for example, let's look down at Jonah chapter 1. Verse 1, the narrator knows that it was God, it really was God, who spoke to Jonah, and he knows exactly what God had to say. <clears throat> then the narrator knows in verse 3 why Jonah ran away, what his heart motivation was, that it was to flee from the presence of the Lord. The narrator knows in verse 4 that the storm at sea was not an accident, that it was God who hurled it down. And the narrator knows in verse 17 that the fish came to swallow Jonah because the Lord appointed it. And we might wonder how the narrator knew all these things. But at the same time, if we're going to understand the Old Testament, we need to trust the narrator. Okay? So two things I want us to notice as we apply that first tool. First, in verse 3, it says that Jonah ran away in order to get away from the presence of the Lord. And the point is repeated for emphasis at the end of the verse. He fled from the presence of the Lord. And Jonah even confesses the same thing to the sailors on the ship, as we find out in verse 10. So in the story of Jonah, there's no ambiguity at all about Jonah's heart motivations. He wasn't confused about his call. He wasn't waiting for a clearer sign from God. He wasn't even procrastinating and making vague plans to go tomorrow or the next day. No, he decided to run. And his motivations were clear to heaven. God sees our hearts. He sees our hearts just as clearly as he saw Jonah's heart. And we mustn't ever think that we can hide our motivations from God. He knows the shadows of our hearts. The second thing to notice is that God was very active in changing Jonah's mind. So both the storm and the fish were acts of God. In this case, the Lord wanted his word to be preached in Nineveh, and he wanted Jonah to be the preacher. No one else. Jonah. And Jonah didn't have a say in the matter. <clears throat> God was able to change the prophet's mind. <clears throat> he was able to bring about his plans in the very way that he intended, and he was able to show his servant how foolish it was to think that he could run away from the presence of God. Even the fish of the sea are under God's command.
So if we think we can go anywhere or do anything that is out of God's sight or beyond his reach, then we're just as foolish as Jonah. So that's the first tool of Hebrew narrative, that the narrator knows everything and is always right. And now here's the second tool. Pay attention to repetition because words are precious. Hebrew writers chose their words carefully and deliberately. They didn't say any more than was absolutely necessary, and they didn't repeat themselves accidentally. If words are repeated, there's a reason. <clears throat> so here at Incarnation, one reason that we like to read and preach from the ESV version of the Bible um, is that the ESV tries to translate the Hebrew or Greek into English word for word very literally. And in particular, it prioritizes translational consistency. So it uses the same English word each time a certain Hebrew or Greek word comes up, whenever that's possible. And what that means is that when we find repeated words in the English, we can be confident that they're also repeated words in the original Hebrew or Greek. So for example, look down at the repetition of the word down in Jonah 1. <coughs> So at the beginning, God calls to Jonah, and he says, Arise and go to Nineveh. In other words, get up and go up. Okay, so the command is up. But in response, Jonah goes down, way down. So verse 3, he went down to Joppa. In verse 5, he went down into the inner part of the ship, and he lay down. God said, go up. But the prophet went down. The repeated language is emphasizing the prophet's deliberate disobedience. He's doing just the opposite of what God wanted him to do. Here's another example. When the captain of the ship finds Jonah, he says to Jonah, arise. His command to him is arise. And that is the exact command that God gave Jonah in verse 1. So the pagan ship captain, who doesn't know the Lord, is speaking the same words that God spoke in verse 1. Then what's more, the other sailors are echoing the actions of God as well. So in verse 4, the verb that's used is hurled. God hurled the great wind upon the sea. And in response, in verse 5, the sailors repeat the same action. They hurl the ship's cargo overboard. And finally, in verse 15, they end up hurling Jonah himself overboard. Now, it seems that Jonah was the only Israelite on board that ship. So everyone else on the ship, uh, they were all Gentiles, and they were not part of God's covenant with Abraham. And what's more, they were pagans. They were worshippers of the Greek and Roman gods. So in Jonah 1, we see a strange paradox. The prophet... The Lord's servant is doing the opposite of what God said. But the Gentile sailors who don't even know the Lord are copying his actions. This is one of several places in the Bible where people outside the family of God are more praiseworthy than God's own people. So another one is like when Jesus told the Roman centurion, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And this pattern of people outside God's family being praised should motivate us who claim to know God to live up to that claim. 
So do people who don't know Jesus pray more than we do? Do they take more action with what little they know? Do they speak up more loudly for justice? Do they give more generously to the poor? And do they show more integrity and self-control in their lives? If they do, then those things are praiseworthy. And whenever we find that to be true, it should really challenge us. We're the children of God, aren't we? Do we sleep like Jonah in the midst of the chaos while people all around us cry out to gods who cannot save? If so, then it's time for us to wake up. The second tool of Hebrew narrative is pay attention to repetition because words are precious. Now for the third tool. The most important information in the story is communicated through speech, through direct speech. That's to say, who's talking and what they say is usually the key to understanding a Hebrew story. So in the mindset of the Old Testament, the spoken word is very important. God created by speaking words, and he made people in his image as speakers, speaking creatures. The prophet Isaiah was made ready to serve God by having his mouth anointed. The priest Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, was disciplined for his unbelief by being made mute. Speech is important. So we need to pay attention to how Jonah 1 uses direct speech. The chapter opens with God speaking. God gives a command to his prophet that anchors the whole story. Jonah is commanded to go to Nineveh and to speak. He's commanded to call out against Nineveh. So what is very striking about Jonah chapter 1 is how little the prophet speaks. He's a prophet, the mouthpiece of God, and he's on an assignment to speak, but he barely says anything at all. He speaks in only two verses in chapter 1, in verses 9 and 12, and both of those times is only in answer to a direct question from the sailors. And in contrast, the sailors themselves do a lot of talking, they are the ones who cry out to their gods in verse 5. Then the captain speaks to Jonah in verse 6. The sailors come up with a plan to find the truth in verse 7. And then they question Jonah in verse 8. When he tells them his story, they rebuke him in verse 10 with the words, What is this that you have done? And those words might sound familiar to those of you who've recently been studying Genesis. Because that is the exact question that God asked Adam after Adam confessed to eating the fruit. And it's the same question that God asked Cain after Cain murdered Abel. Once again, the Gentile sailors are speaking the words of God while the prophet remains silent. And it's these sailors who are given the last word in the chapter. The last words of direct speech in Jonah 1 are a prayer by the Gentile sailors to the living God, a prayer to Yahweh. He's not even their God, and they're praying to him. They say, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. How many words of prayer did Jonah offer in this whole chapter? 
None. None at all. The pagan sailors are praying to Yahweh while the Lord's own prophet remains silent. The only two things Jonah does say both reflect poorly on him. The first is a lie. He says, I fear the Lord, but he clearly doesn't. He's doing everything he can to run away from the Lord. And the second thing he says is to tell the sailors to pick him up and throw him overboard. Coward! Throw yourself overboard. Don't make them responsible for your life. Again, the sailors come to fill in the vacuum of godliness which is left by the Lord's prophet. They had no desire to kill him, even to save their own lives. Instead, they bravely rode against the storm until it became hopeless. And when they finally gave in to their inevitable task and threw him overboard, they did it in conversation with God. And so we get to witness at the end of this chapter the astonishing moment when the prophet of God, who would not get up and go up to Nineveh as God commanded, is finally picked up by the Gentile sailors on the boat. The first time in the story that Jonah stops going down and starts to go up is on the backs of those sailors. He can't do it himself, and they have to do it for him. Now, I want to bring all of this home for us using the fourth tool which is take note of who has the last word. We already saw that the sailors had the last word of direct speech, but the narrator closes the chapter with two conclusions. He concludes in verse 16 the story of the sailors with faith. And he concludes in verse 17 the story of Jonah with death. Or is it death? So let's think first about those sailors. After their interaction with Jonah, the sailors turned to the living God with faith. Verse 16 says, They feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. That is faith. That is a new relationship with the God of heaven. Jonah did nothing good whatever in chapter 1. Nothing. He said nothing true or helpful, did nothing noble or honorable. And yet, because those sailors met Jonah, they ended up trusting in the living God. So here in this story, we see God's real heart for the nations of the world. So when God called Abraham, he promised that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God doesn't just want to save his own people. He wants to save all people. He wants to make all all people his own people. Every family and tribe and nation and tongue. That's why he raised up Abraham's family. And it's why he sent Jonah to Nineveh. And it's why Jesus sent his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. Because all the peoples of the earth belong to one God. And God wants to save all of them. When Jonah fled from one set of Gentiles in Nineveh, he bumped into another set of Gentiles going to Tarshish. And God seized the opportunity of the prophet's disobedience to save them too. How clear it is here that our God wants to bring all the nations of the world into his fold. And when Jesus came, he made that clearer still. So we celebrate that our good news that Jesus brought us brings real hope for racial reconciliation in this country 
and across the world. Because our message is that every tribe and nation of people in the world is precious to God and that Jesus came for every one of them. And all of them have a home prepared for them in his kingdom where we can all live reconciled and reunited as one new humanity. And that's our hope. Jonah climbed on a boat, so God saved the men on the boat. And so the knowledge of the living God went on a boat all the way to Tarshish that day. And if God can accomplish that through his servant's disobedience, how much more can God accomplish through our obedience? So are you ready to follow where God calls you and to go where he leads you? It's allowed to be anywhere in the world, isn't it? Right now, it's accorded Tallahassee, but it could someday be Nineveh or even Raqqa. Are you ready to go? Right now, Cassidy's in Uganda, and Ceci's just signed up to spend two years in Mexico. And let's remember to pray for them and to encourage them as they follow God's call. And let's ask ourselves if we are ready to go where God calls us. But there's still one more verse to talk about in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. And the final word of Jonah chapter 1 is a word about death. Jonah became fish food. Verse 17 says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And just because we know this story, and we've heard it since we were children, and we know what happens next, let's not miss that this point in the story is a real moment of death. This is rock bottom. This is hopelessness. The prophet who chose the path down has now gone all the way down to the depth of the ocean. There's nowhere further down for him to go. Michael created a wonderfully evocative picture to illustrate this moment in Jonah's life, and we've hung it on the back wall uh, next to the door back there. And I uh, want you to all make sure that you get the chance to take a really good look at it before you leave today. So in Michael's picture, which isn't, he didn't actually pick, uh, draw about Jonah, but it's uh, wonderfully appropriate to this moment. So Jonah is crashing through the surface of the ocean and sinking in a cloud of bubbles while a great whale waits patiently for his arrival. <laughs> I think that's a really great image, and I think it will carry uh, different layers of meaning for us as we continue to study the book of Jonah together. But as you look at it today, I want you to think about death. I want you to think about rock bottom. To look at that picture and to feel the utter hopelessness of the situation as Jonah leaves the light of day for the last time and plunges inexorably into the blackness of the ocean. Has any situation in our lives ever been more desperate than that? Has any problem ever been more unsolvable? Has any nightmare ever been more realized? But even in that moment, God was still there. He was still there. He's there in Michael's picture by the fish that he appointed. 
And thank goodness the fish was obedient to God's call. Jonah is in that desperate place because God put him there. God was sovereign over the storm that rocked the boat and sovereign over the lots that identified Jonah and he was sovereign over the fish that swallowed him. Nothing in all that chaotic situation was outside of God's control. So not even in this picture of absolute despair and death is there anything that's beyond the hope of resurrection. That's what I want to cling to today. The power and the majesty and the mercy of God. Jonah ran away from God and he took the downward path of death and God graciously accelerated that path of death so that it took him to death quickly so that he would see his foolishness and change his mind. God brought about his sovereign will in the life of his disobedient servant. He never lost control for a moment. <clears throat> and that is both sober... <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> and that is both sobering and comforting. So we trust that our God is still in control. Despite the present chaos, and that he can bring resurrection even to our desperate situation of death. And we learn from Jonah that the only safe place on earth is the center of God's will. Wherever God's command may send us, let's go. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.